because Anna and Chris are slackers, is Casey Craner, our PAC director. Casey, how are you today? I am doing good and 100% not slacking. Not slacking. Also taking a little bit of coffee on the side, so hopefully you're awake and ready for this. Yeah, well, you know, nothing like a 2 o'clock cup of coffee to keep things rolling. <laughs> Better, well, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, coffee all day, every day. So we're going to talk about a handful of topics today. We're going to start with the Supreme Court nomination that President Biden has put forward to replace the retiring Justice Breyer. We're going to talk about a vote that happened in the U.S. Senate on Monday over the Women's Health Protection Act. Then we're going to segue into what happened on Tuesday night in the State of the Union address, which apparently no one was watching because there were, I believe the number was 38 million people who tuned in to watch, which was the lowest number since 1991, or was it 1992? It's been 30 years. It was a long time ago. And then we're going to talk, to finish the day, we're going to talk a little bit about the midterms that happened down in Texas and what that can mean, what it indicates for pro-life movement going forward. And since Casey is our expert on all things elections and politics, he is going to be our expert for that today. So, getting right into it, the um, Supreme Court nomination. So, President Biden announced last Thursday, yes, last Thursday, my timeline is correct, that he has nominated Katanji Brown Jackson to replace Justice Breyer. Now, Justice Breyer is not going to be leaving the Supreme Court until the end of this term, which is in June, which is when people expect the results of the Dobbs v. Jackson case. Uh, so keep that in mind that he is leaving the court. And if you've listened to us in the past, you know my crazy conspiracy theory about that, that Breyer is going to vote to overturn Roe. My tinfoil hat is still on today. But we're, we're, let's get right into who is Katanji Brown Jackson and why is she the Supreme Court nominee? So, Casey, you have sitting in front of you a little bit of her background. Yes. So, some basic information. She has obviously been selected as the nominee that uh, President Biden is going to try and get through and put to replace Breyer. She graduated from Harbor Law School in 1996, after which she did a couple of federal clerkships with judges, notably Justice Breyer... And then after that, from about 2005 to 2007, she served as a public defender. She was the vice chair commissioner of the U.S. Sentencing Commission before she became a district judge in 2014. And then she was appointed to the Washington, D.C. Federal Appellate Court in June of 2021, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that appellate court, specifically that one for D.C., is the one where people, uh, presidents will traditionally place folks who they have an interest in elevating that that is true we have seen that quite a bit in the past um Kavanaugh. so yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a staging ground for potential supreme court justices the interesting thing about um jackson that a lot of people have brought up but it, it is kind of interesting is she 
serving as a public defendant is a very, very rare thing for Supreme Court justices and Supreme Court nominees to do. The last Supreme Court justice who served as a public uh, defendant was Thurgood Marshall, and he retired from the Supreme Court the same year I was born, so 1991. Uh, Great year, by the way, (laughs) but, um, well, not so great because of who was coming into office and you know, he was very pro-abortion, but in other ways, it could have been good. Uh, so it, it is interesting that they decided to pick someone who won, has been in the federal, basically the federal appellate court system for less than a year, um, and someone who has more experience in the criminal justice side of things than generally in what Supreme Court nominees do. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it's fair for us to say this. I think some of that uh, difficulty in her experience was President Biden, in a sense, trying to find somebody uh, who met preset criteria because he did make a a commitment during the campaign uh, that his Supreme Court nominee, he was going to appoint a a black woman. Um, And that was the chief criteria he was initially using to, to vet his justice candidates. So... I think to an extent the unique nature of this candidate's uh, background really is kind of a result of that, is that there weren't actually a whole lot of African-American women uh, on the courts. In fact, I think when you compare uh, Barack Obama's appointees to the federal bench with Donald Trump's appointees to the federal bench, his are actually a lot more diverse. That is true. I was going through the wonderful Wikipedia list because they're not always an accurate source on anything, and by that I mean rarely, but in cases where you're looking for who's listed on these and this and that court, you can get pretty general information. And so I was looking at the appeals courts when Breyer first mentioned he was retiring and kind of going through and say, okay, this is the criteria Joe Biden has given us. Who is he going to pick? And it came down to there were only a handful of people who met his one basic criteria and it was one shocking and two it's like oh so you're pulling from a very small pool yeah and i i think that's the real factor here uh i think if they would have not considered race and sex in determining the nominee that they wanted to pick we'd likely be seeing somebody with a much different uh judicial background that is true, and and this is so. Katanji Brown Jackson, if I'm, I think I'm correct in this, that she has not authored a single opinion in her judicial career. She has not listed for a single opinion, which means one, there's really no judicial record that people can go back and nitpick. But two, there's no judicial record that anyone can look at to figure out what the heck she's thinking. Um, it is a very interesting choice um but really what we're concerned about is what is her stance on the right to life um and we know based on the politics of the administration that president biden was going to pick a pro-abortion advocate for the court that was a guaranteed so we know at least on that level even though she has no real judicial record that she is pro-abortion. We do have one further clue, though, and it is from a case that came out of, was it Kentucky? Was it Kentucky? 
There was a there was a case that was in one of the states there. They were trying to ban pro-life people from picketing on the sidewalks outside of abortion facilities. So pretty standard procedure. You've got your 40 Days for Life campaigns. A lot of the times, pregnancy resource centers will try to build directly across the street from the abortion facility so that they can say, hey, you don't need to kill your baby. Come in here, and we'll give you free resources and a free ultrasound, and we're going to take care of you. But there was a case where a state was trying to ban that activity. So they're trying to ban, one, pro-life picketing, and two, uh, freedom of speech. And Jackson wrote an amicus brief on behalf of NARAL and other pro-abortion groups supporting that law, which is a bad sign. Yep. Definitely not a good indicator. Um, and honestly, at this point, who knows how it's going to affect things. I'm hoping for that, that Breyer vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and Dovey oh, Bolton. Uh, but that is kind of the reality is you know, you've still got, with the potential reversal of Roe v. Wade and Bull v. Doton, we've got to see where certain folks are going to come down, like John Roberts and Stephen Breyer. So this might be a situation where if she makes it on the court, and I, I do think it is very much an if at this point, given how the U.S. Senate is, you know, it might only force things back into a situation where if Roe v. Wade does get reversed, you've still then got six votes to get rid of it, uh, as opposed to a possible 7-2 situation. Yeah, it really doesn't change the dynamics on the court much at all in the short term. Um, she's fairly young, so maybe 40, 30, 40 years down the road, it could be a significant thing on the Supreme Court. But for now, replacing one pro-abortion justice with another pro-abortion justice doesn't make that much of a difference. So moving on, we're going to go into the vote that happened at the U.S. Senate on Monday. Uh, good news, the Women's Health Protection Act that has nothing to do about protecting women's health failed. Um, it did not get the necessary votes to go to the floor for a final vote, and so it is dead, gone, praise the Lord is all I am saying. So the bill was passed by the House of Representatives back, I believe, September 27th was the exact date. Um, and it was a party-line vote. And what, what this bill would have done is legalized abortion through birth in all 50 states, very few restrictions or penalties. It would have allowed tax-funded abortion. It would have gotten rid of informed consent and parental consent. And it would have been a bad deal for everyone. Um, and calling it the Women's Health Protection Act, not very good. An accurate name would have been the Free Abortion for All Act, but um, I don't think they could have gotten quite as many votes even if they did, that they ended up getting if they had been honest. Yeah, so, I, I mean, party line vote right down the middle. And the thing that you got to understand is there's, within the Republican Party, a good number of people um, – that lean pretty solid left to center on some of these issues. I mean, if you look at the U.S. Senate, you've, you know, you've got folks like uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Those same types of people exist in the U.S. House. So for it to have kind of be this party line, I think there was a single Democrat that voted against it. I mean, it's got to be radical, radical uh, to really bring along some of those more left-leaning Republicans uh, and really get the, the pro-life Democrat on board. So, you know, I think there is a realization 
among a lot of these folks uh, of just how radical a lot of this is. Um, you know, I mean, think back to what Ralph Northrum was saying here uh, a few years ago about taking a, essentially a baby in another room and... Making it comfortable while they decide what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the situation. I mean, most people will inherently recognize that as wrong. So, you know, it just speaks to how radicalized this legislation is and really, you know, for the lack of a better term, how radicalized the Democratic Party has gotten on a lot of this stuff that only one of their members voted against it. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Joe Manchin from West Virginia for one standing and defending the Hyde Amendment consistently for the last year, and also for voting against this crazy muck pile of talking points. Um, and it, it really, they are so out of touch with the American people, it's shocking. When you look at polling, and it's consistently across polls from across the country, different universities, different metrics, all of them say that at least 70% of Americans are against late-term abortion. Like, at a minimum, yeah. 70%. That's a super majority, right? And then you have politicians who are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign donations from Planned Parenthood and their friends that are trying to make abortion through birth, and in the case of Ralph Northam and others, infanticide after. And you you just, I don't know how you can be that out of touch with the American people. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I want to give you an answer. I honestly don't have one for you. I don't know how somebody can uh, look at an innocent child and look at these kinds of situations and say, you know, we're going to have essentially a fanticide and we're going to pay for it with taxpayer dollars. Like, I don't even understand the first part of it. I'm certainly not going to understand the second. So, um, but we are starting to see kind of the consequences of, you know, these hyper-radicalized positions on the, uh, on the Democratic Party in the long term. We've definitely noticed a large number of systemic changes, historical U.S. House, State House, State Senate districts, uh, really since 2010, um, when the party started to do that shift, we've seen how they've transitioned from areas that were solid Democrat, would elect pro-life Democrats for years and years, to now they're just solid Republican areas. And it's fueled in large part by this issue. So uh, the next place that we're starting to see a lot of that is in Texas. Yeah, so it is crazy just to think of how quickly things have changed. The life issue did not used to be a partisan issue, and it's unfortunately becoming more and more partisan as time goes on, where you have now leaders of the Democratic Party saying there's no room for pro-lifers here. Um, even 10 years ago, it was more you had pro-life Democrats and pro-life Republicans, and, and they could fight about all of the little issues, but were united in the fact of saying we should not kill babies. And that's not the case anymore. And for those those Democrats that are holding desperately onto their party who are pro-life just realize that, one, it's going to be a lot of work on your part and on the part of other people like you to reform your party, right? Yeah. And, and two, like, there is always hope for that. And we desperately hope for that. We would love to endorse more pro, genuinely pro-life people, regardless of what party they come from. 
Uh, right to Life of Michigan here, we are a nonpartisan organization. We care about are you going to protect human life or are you not? And so we want more people to protect life and go yeah. to the bat for life. And, and who cares what letter they've got or what their team mascot is? If you're going to protect life, you're going to protect life. And so it's been discouraging to see that change. Yeah, and I would definitely say that while it's discouraging, um, the fact that we've still got at the local level, when you look around here in Michigan, we have many pro-life Democrats at the local level endorsed by Right to Life Michigan PAC in the previous elections, and we'll have more uh, in the coming election. You know, I, in a big way, uh, really respect these guys more than I respect any other politician because they really stick their neck out there. I mean, they put themselves at risk of very expensive primary races every two years because they don't want to back down on this issue, even uh, if it's something that doesn't necessarily come up during their term. But they're just not willing to back down from it. They believe what they believe, and they believe that, you know, the unborn is a human being, and they're going to fight for them. So, I mean, when it comes to the pro-life Democrats, I really respect them actually more than just about any other they're politician. They're risking more. Yeah. They're risking so much more. Exactly. Yeah, so, and local elections are becoming where it's at um, in, in politics on the national level. And so, I mean, let's talk about it. There were midterms that happened in the state of Texas. There were midterms, that, or we had special elections here, um, yep. which were interesting, but, you know, eh, let's talk about Texas. What the heck just happened to Texas, Casey? Uh well, if I'm one of those pro-abortion Democrats, I'm not wanting to feel too good right now. So there was a usual primary election in Texas that happened on Tuesday. And a couple of things just to cover on the Texas primary system and how it works. So they have primary elections, same as pretty much every other state. You know, they had it in this particular year for governor, uh, secretary, um, attorney general, land commissioner, things like that, some statewide races congressional races, state house, state senate. They have an added level where if somebody doesn't clear 50% in the primary, the top two contenders go into a runoff election that will happen in May. And then in May, the candidate is selected by each of the parties based on the runoff. And then you've got the general election in November. Fairly straightforward. The reason Texas is so interesting to watch is first, A, it's the real big first major kind of primary and election of the season. We had Virginia and New Jersey, which really indicated strongly towards some Republican uh, wave type effects coming on here. Especially in Virginia, it was a very pro-life tilt in that election. Yeah, they managed to flip the lieutenant governor, attorney general, governor's seat, and I believe both chambers of the legislature. Yes. Or I believe the Senate, they've still got, it's just a couple of people. They're still in a pro-life minority in the Senate. I believe, don't quote me on that. Yeah. But, I mean, it was a situation where, for context, I think the last time that Virginia elected a Republican into a statewide position was 2010. So you're talking over a decade ago. Pretty significant. The reason that Texas matters is we're kind of seeing if that momentum carries forward, but we're also seeing kind of what Hispanic and Latino demographic voters are doing. That was one of the big takeaways from 2020 is there were just massive, massive shifts 
uh, in the Hispanic vote. The sort of stuff that really is almost appears unbelievable just because of the sheer size of it. I believe it was uh, Miami-Dade County in Florida. There was a 20 to 30 point shift towards Donald Trump, which is, you know, that kind of demographic adjustment, <clears throat> I apologize, uh, is almost unheard of. In particular, Star County, which is a Texas border county, real ancestral Democratic territory, very Hispanic. Uh, Hillary Clinton won it by about 60 points. In 2020, Joe Biden won it by about five. It's it's really just interesting to watch how quickly this turnabout has happened. Uh, Star County is another example um, previously mentioned, but another factor is they cast 12 total GOP primary votes in 2018. Uh, so far as I can tell from the results from 2022 here a few days ago, they cast close to 1,500. Which is insane. Yeah, you're talking thousands of percents increase. It's It doesn't happen. Well, it didn't used to happen. Yeah, this is... This would be like a Republican candidate in the center of Detroit getting a thousand votes in that kind of area. It's it's just unheard of. So if we can kind of unpack some of why this change is going on, and I do want to note one thing. So there's one final pro-life Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives. His name is Henry. Last name, I believe, is Crowler. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he is the last pro-life Dem. And he is from one of those border districts on the Texas line there between Mexico and Texas. So uh, 2020, he was primary by a pro-abortion Democrat who came very close to taking him out. Uh, he managed to win by 3,000 votes, thank goodness. And the candidate announced that they were going to challenge him again. Uh, he came out ahead in this last election uh, by about 1,500 votes but neither he nor his opponent cleared 50%. There was a third candidate in the race that pulled about 4%. So they're both going to be going for a runoff. But it really speaks to kind of the nature of what's going on with the Democratic Party and along the abortion issue. They really went teeth out for Dan Lipinski a few years ago, and now they're going teeth out for Henry Kroller. But hopefully... We get to the May runoff, and he wins, and we've got a solid pro-life Democrat running for re-election in this seat. What's interesting to see, though, is how the life issue is really affecting this dynamic with the Hispanic community. So, obviously, you know, we're going to set aside issues like immigration, border security, and things like that. They matter. That's part of the shift as well. But a huge portion of the Hispanic and Latino community is very Christian, uh, very ancestrally Catholic, and that's having an effect on their decisions and what they decide to do. Uh, I believe it was a local elected official in that Kroller district basically said uh, that if the pro-abortion Democrat won the primary, I mean, you would see people defecting from the Democratic Party to vote for whoever the Republican nominee is, because down there, Hispanic and Catholic, they're not going to support somebody who's pro-abortion, and especially not somebody who's radically pro-abortion, which is what this Democratic uh, opponent is. You know, it's somebody that would have absolutely voted for the uh, 
you know. The Women's Health Protection Act. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we see this just becoming a huge battleground area, and it's becoming a battleground area because of this issue. Because somebody who takes their faith seriously in this kind of way as a voter, you know, they can't. There, there's a If you take your faith seriously, your conscience, I guarantee you, abortion all through nine months, after nine months, with tax dollars, no parental consent, you know, no parental notification, teachers counseling students to get abortions. It just doesn't fly. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Most people recognize that that is inherently wrong. So what we've seen is definitely... You know, the Dems are going teeth out for Henry Kohler. They want to get rid of him. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Cortez all made trips down to that district for the opponent. Uh, and they still didn't pull it off. Henry Kohler still got 1,500 more votes uh, than his opponent did. So we're hoping he makes it through the runoff. But definitely you can see how the abortion issue and the life issues are just cascading uh, through the Hispanic community. And we see it everywhere. Uh, there's a new district in Colorado for the U.S. House that is 35% Hispanic, and it's a toss-up district. I mean, if, if Hispanic voters were continuing to vote the same way that they did in 2016 and 2014, that would really not be a toss-up district. Uh, and really, we're excited. Uh, we're excited to hopefully get some pro-life Democrats in these kinds of seats and to hopefully get some pro-life Republicans in some of these seats, ultimately just pro-life people. So I think that pretty much covers most of the Texas stuff. I will say Republican turnout was way up uh, compared to what it was in 2018, whereas Democratic turnout compared to 2018 in Texas stayed pretty much the same. So, so local elections are where it is at, and it is a good reminder that we have elections coming up here in Michigan. We've got our primaries are in August. Yes. So we do have a couple of those special U, uh, state house elections that will be, I believe, May 2nd or May 3rd, whatever that Tuesday is. So if you're in Kent, Oakland, or Macomb. May uh, 3rd is the Tuesday. May 3rd. Yep. That's when we have legislative day. We match up the timing perfectly. Yeah. So uh, we've got those. And we will also be having the August 2nd, or uh, not, is it August 2nd? I don't know the dates that far yeah. in advance. <laughs> it's, it's the August primary. Uh, and I do want to note that, you know, just outside of that, we do have an endorsement for Attorney General. You know, Tom Leonard is in the race. And really, he's the only one uh, running that has a concrete record, something that you can physically look to and say he voted for and supported this pro-life legislation. Uh, we have endorsed him, and if you are a precinct delegate in the Michigan Republican Party, the nominating convention is on April 23rd. So, you know, just bear that in mind. I mean, he is the Right to Life of Michigan PAC endorsed candidate in that race. Uh, we know there is one candidate in the race who is not pro-life, and as such, you know, we we had to go with uh, with Tom. Yeah, so. and it's we're we're confident that he's going to defend our abortion ban that he will uphold Michigan law unlike our current attorney general who has vowed not to uphold our 
laws. Uh, it looks like that's all the time we have for today. We got a little lost down in Texas and didn't get a chance really to get into the State of the Union address, but I guess really the only thing you need to know about it is that um, during the speech, President Biden lamented the failure of the Women's Health Protection Act, vowed to send more support and more money to the abortion industry, and he was all brokenhearted, and internally I was celebrating as he was lowering his head in defeat because his powerful friends in the abortion industry are sitting on their back foot and they're not winning right now so we got to keep it that way um thank you for joining us for life beats today we should be back to our regular 